So this morning's reading is John chapter 5, verse 16 to 13. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work on this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honour the son just as they honour the father. Whoever does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And we continue now on verse 31 to 47. The testimony is about Jesus. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You were sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his words dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, of whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And this is God's word. 
Amen. Well, thank you to, Shara, uh, to Shona and to Karen uh, for bringing God's word to us here this morning. Keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, I write the preaching program for the church, and uh, we've got 30 verses here this morning. I've no idea what I was thinking that morning when I put that together. So we're not going to be able to cover all of it. It reminds me a bit of a very disastrous family holiday we had when we were teenagers. My, we very rarely went abroad, and my parents booked 48 hours in Paris and decided we needed to see everything on foot. And so we ran pretty much from site to site to site. And eventually, um, in the final afternoon, my brother and I went on strike and just sat on a bench outside Notre Dame and just said, you go and see anything else you want to. We will still be here when you get back. Uh, my brother and I just sat and chatted for the remainder of the afternoon because we could take no more. I hope this morning's sermon won't feel like that, but I fear it might. So if it does, you just need to sit on a bench and enjoy one of the great truths here and think about it some more. Don't mind me. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at this together now. Quiz questions to start. Uh, Luke, you got the PowerPoint there? That's it. What happened on the 14th of November, 1948? Prince Charles was born, exactly right. Have you said that? That's, that's the year, our king, the date of our king's birth. And three years after he was born, his mother became queen. And from then on, he's known all his life, hasn't he, that he would one day, if he outlived his mother, become king. It's the way things work under our constitution. And whether or not they got on or not made no difference, did it? They could have had the most hostile relationship. At the age of whatever he was, he could have gone to boarding school, which he did, and never come back again. And they could never have spoken another word until the 8th of September this year. And he would still have become king. It's his birthright. But one of the things that's really touched me, and I don't know if it's touched you, we're all wired differently, is how affectionate the king has been when he's spoken about his mum. Those occasional unguarded moments where the press, I feel sorry for the royal family and all famous people putting up with our press, but those moments where they get a picture through the window or through the window of a car and you just see the grief etched on our king's face because grief is the price paid in pain for the ending of a precious relationship. For some of you in here this morning, that is so true and so raw, not just because of the queen, but because of others in your family. And so what we have here today in this chapter, if you get nothing else, is a very special relationship, similar to that in some respects between the queen and his mum. But in this case, it's between the Lord Jesus and his father. His father was God Almighty, and yet, it wasn't just a kind of cold relationship, quite the opposite. It was a relationship of intense love. Look with me at verses um, 16 uh, to 18. It says there, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. If you were here last week, you'll know there was a guy who had been lying by a pool for 38 years, unable to use his legs. And Jesus had met him and said, do you want to be well? And then he healed the man, but he deliberately did it on a Saturday. Now, for us, that wouldn't be a big deal, 
But for the Jewish people, that was a huge deal because Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. And the Jewish leadership had listed lots and lots of categories of work, and one was carrying something like a mat. So Jesus deliberately provoked a confrontation with the religious mafia. He knew they had power. He knew they would be cross, but he decided that he was going to take down the cartel one way or another and show them there was a different way to live. And what we're looking at here is the confrontation. And what you're going to see time and again in John is confrontation. We tend to think that Jesus came to bring peace, right? That was why he came, to bring peace, peace to our hearts, peace to our world. Well, yeah, long term. But actually in Jesus' ministry, what you're going to keep seeing is conflict. Jesus bringing the truth and the light and the love of the kingdom and people reacting with anger and temper and hostility and even a murderous hatred. That's what we're going to see. So they began to persecute him. They came at him. And in his defense, Jesus doesn't defend himself at all. It's a bit like he says the most offensive, provocative thing he could possibly say. He just says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself, here's our phrase for today, equal with God. So it's not One of those things that was pushed onto Jesus' life later by his disciples. Right from the start, people understood the claim Jesus was making. He said, look, my father, we'll come to that in a sec, is always at work. He doesn't have a day off. He doesn't take Saturday off from running the universe. If he did, the stars would fall out of the sky, the sun wouldn't rise, plants wouldn't grow, and you'd stop breathing. So everyone agreed that God didn't have a day off. There was work, essential work, to be done. God is an essential worker. And what Jesus was saying is, so am I. The work of doing good doesn't stop on a Saturday. If I see someone whose life's broken, if I see someone I can help, if I see someone and I can put things right, you're not going to hold me back. You can threaten to kill me, but my light, my goodness, my love is going to break through into that situation just like it did for that disabled guy over there. That's what he's doing. And he makes it even more offensive. You didn't flinch because you're used to it. But he called God my father. That would be like me calling the queen my darling mama. Now, there is one person only, I think, in, well, maybe, maybe four of them, who can get away with calling the queen my darling mama. If I start doing that, well, you'd think Neil's become a Fruit Loop, wouldn't you? And it's time to sort him out. The man has finally cracked. We saw it coming for 15 years and finally he's wandered over the edge. Because the queen is not my darling mama. My mum is called Vanda. And Jesus actually said, my dad, my darling papa, didn't quite use those words, but more or less, is there. And that was highly offensive for them. For someone to claim that much was a capital offense. You could be killed. They could actually pick up rocks legitimately and stone you to death. 
And as we work through John, we'll see there are places where people get that angry. What Jesus is claiming is very offensive, but he doesn't pull back. And so what I want to do this morning is say, can we really believe that? Can we really believe that the carpenter from Nazareth, who spent 18 years or more working on a building site, probably making doors, door frames, window frames, we always imagine he made furniture for Harrods. He didn't. Do you know what I mean? He was a normal bloke working on a building site, was actually saying, God is my father, and I'm equal with him in authority, status, and honor. If you want to know God, you have to come through me. That is massive. But Jesus here gives some reasons why he says we should believe him. So the first one is, why did Jesus think he was equal with God? And the, reason, the first reason he gives is because he has life in himself. He says it a number of times. I don't know if you picked up on it there. Um, he says there, uh, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. He has life in himself. Do you remember how the Bible starts? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you remember how he did it? He didn't have to get a team round. He didn't get a construction unit together to work on different parts. Do you remember? He said, let there be light. And light appeared. And sun and moon and stars, he did it all by speaking. He had life in himself and he could just breathe it out and make stuff. Now, we don't have that power. So if I say, let there be bunnies, there are none. For those of you who can't see on the camera or on the floor here, there are no bunnies. Don't worry. But that's also a good thing, isn't it? Because let's say I got creative and I said, let there be Tyrannosaurus Rex. Now, that would be quite thrilling for those of you that weren't squashed. Uh, but um, for the rest of us charging out the nearest exit to avoid getting eaten, that would also be bad. But you see the general point here is... I don't have life in myself. I'm not able to just create stuff around the room by speaking. Jesus had life in himself. He could say to a guy who had never walked, whose muscles would have been completely atrophied and gone, get up and walk. And the muscles just created themselves in that guy, and he got up and he walked. Later on in John, we're going to see he could actually talk to a corpse. Let me tell you, if you do that, nothing will happen. Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus. His friend had been dead for three days. He said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead guy walked out the tomb. You see, Jesus says, I am really equal with God because I have life in myself. I can make stuff happen that you just can't because I have life in me. And Jesus' second reason was he has the right to judge. So God alone could give life and God alone had the right to judge other people. I did a funeral this week. Do you want to know what the son of the deceased said to me just as we finished? Do you want to know the best thing about my dad? He didn't judge anyone. Strong statement, isn't it? I think we feel very comfortable with that as seen as a virtue in our culture. But you see here, Jesus judges everyone. He judges you and he judges me. And that's what it says here. Verse 22, did you see that? Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verses 27 on would say the same thing. And he's given him authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. That's part of his role. Don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. 
every single one, not just Lazarus is made in a tomb, but anyone who has died throughout all of time, and they'll come out, and those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will be condemned. Jesus isn't just the one who brings life. He's the one who came to judge all people from all time. He has that right. And you know what? For all of us, that would be bad news. Because left to our own record, we would all be those who rose to be condemned. Compare your life to the life of Jesus Christ. You are maybe a kind person, a good person in many ways. But we all fall short. Not one of us lives a life that is exemplary, except for Jesus Christ. And he says, my life of love is the standard you're aiming at. And we say, well, I come in about here. Is that good enough? And he says, no way. But the amazing good news of the gospel is this. Jesus didn't come to judge all of us so we would be condemned as we deserve. He came to take our place and to lift us up so that we might have new life in him that we might be forgiven for our sins. On the cross, he swapped places with us. He died in our place. Our judge became our savior. And he took the punishment and the death that we deserve so that we might live. And Jesus says these two things, the fact that he has life in himself, the fact that he has the right to judge all people are the reasons why he is God and he has equal honor with God. That separates us from many other people around the world, if you believe that. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. I was walking past the Jehovah's Witnesses place this week, and just for a sermon illustration, I was tempted to get into a conversation with one of them about the identity of Jesus. But I didn't. I walked respectfully by. Um, Richard Dawkins, the atheist, used to wear a T-shirt that used to say, Atheist for Jesus. Now, I kind of know what he means, in that he's saying, I respect Jesus but I don't believe in God. But you see, you can't really believe that having read the Bible. Jesus believed he was God. He had life in himself. He had the right to judge you and me. The wonder of the good news is he came to give us life where we deserve to be judged. That's the amazing thing about Jesus. That's how much he loved people like you and like me. And the rest of this passage is really why he says they should have believed. So while they're probably still in stunned silence, Jesus just carries on. In for a penny, in for a pound. He decides he's going to say, look, you should believe me. And here's four reasons why. One, you used to like listening to my mate John. John the baptizer. Do you remember him? He came before Jesus for about a year or so and baptized people. And even the leaders sent people out to say, who are you? Why are you doing what you're doing? Do you remember what he said? on getting people ready to meet the king. So Jesus here in those opening verses says, um, uh, verse 33, you've sent to John and he testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave you light and you chose to enjoy his light basically for a time, for a while. And Jesus is saying you should have believed him forever because every word he said about me was the truth. I'm the king that was testified to, and I came. You should believe what he said. Just as a short aside, most people I know that become Christians do so because someone they respect is already a Christian. That was certainly true for me. There were people I respected who already walked down this path, and I looked at their life and had something I didn't, and I knew it. 
I was raised in a Christian family, so my parents were a massive influence on me. My first wife, Elaine, she was raised in an atheistic family. Her, her, her father basically really follows Richard Dawkins and other leading atheists. He's, he's very widely read. There's a family without religion. But you can't stop God. If God wants to save someone, he just will. And so in her English lesson sat next to her was a girl called Misty Temple. I mean, what a name. Misty Temple was sat next to my first wife, Elaine. And Misty was a Christian. And Misty shared her faith in English with my first wife, Elaine, and brought her to youth group and took her to hear Billy Graham. And listening to Billy, my first wife was saved. You could be that person. You could be that person in your school, in your workplace, in your college, in your retirement, in your neighborhood, in your family, that other people see the light in the life of Jesus and they respect you. And so they listen and they want to know more. Anyway, by the by, first reason Jesus says they should have believed is because of John. The second one is, I have a way to test me that out of John for the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works I'm doing testify the Father sent me. Jesus did miracles. More than, I think, 38. You have to Google it later. I think 38 are recorded in all the Gospels. Seven in the first half of John, one right at the end, makes eight. But seven miracles in the first half of John's Gospel, beginning with Jesus turning water into wine, ending with Lazarus coming out of the tomb. Jesus says they're evidence. Nobody can do those things except me because I'm God coming into his world, putting things right. So he says, that's the second thing. The third thing he says is this, and the Father who sent me has testified concerning me. Do you remember Jesus was baptized by John the baptizer? He went down into the water, and as he came up again, the Spirit of God came down, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That was something that either happened or it didn't, but if it did... That's testimony from heaven actually saying, this is my boy, and I think he's wonderful, and you should listen to him. And the final thing here is Jesus says, the whole Bible's actually all about me. Now, they didn't have our back half, the New Testament, but they did have everything else. Two-thirds they had, and Jesus says, it's all about me. So verses 39 and 40, I think, are some of the most challenging verses in the whole Bible. Jesus says to these deeply religious people who knew the first half, these first two-thirds, by heart. They could recite it. I think that's an incredible feat of memory. I don't know about you. I struggle to remember phone numbers. You know, let alone the whole of this. But they knew it by heart. And Jesus says to them, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus says, everything in here is about me, but you, you don't see me. You won't come to me. You don't believe me. And then he goes back to that at the end in verses 45 onwards. He says, but you do not think I accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. But if you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote about me. And in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, Moses, just before he died, said, someone's coming. They're going to be a prophet like me. They're going to speak God's very word to you. 
Don't miss that prophet. He's going to be amazing. So Jesus said all of these things should have enabled them to see him. Do you ever feel like when you're trying to explain the Christian faith, you're banging your head against a brick wall? Do you have the same conversations with people over and over? Or do you have no conversations because people don't want to know? You say something and it just doesn't seem to go anywhere. Do you ever wonder if you're at fault? I do. I sometimes wonder why my life has made so little difference. How I've managed to spend 17 years here and make so little impact. That troubles me. Does it trouble you? But one of the things that comforts me just a little bit is no one was more godly than Jesus. He was God. No one was better at explaining things than Jesus. No one was more kind and loving and knew what to say um, and put things so well. And yet, even when he explained things, do you see people pushed him away? They rejected him. They actually just got murderously angry with him. Why is it? Why is it in the light of all of these evidence that people will not believe? That's our next question here today. Why wouldn't they believe him? In one word, religion. Religion. They had a religion. And it gave them an understanding of how the world worked. And Jesus didn't fit into that category. It gave them morals and made them think they were good people, maybe even better people than other people. I was very tempted. Someone, we had a new club on Friday night. One of, one of the parents walked in and went, oh, it even smells like a church. I said, yes, yeah, the smell of self-righteousness and hypocrisy that we pump around the building. But I didn't. I bit my tongue. But you see, it gives people that opportunity to feel special. Jesus says, you like looking around and feeling good. You're like a club. And you make each other feel better about one another. But really, your lives are nothing like mine. That's what he says to these folks who have given their whole lives, they believe, to serving God. And it's not just formal religion that can get in the way. It's an attitude of heart that basically says, I'm a good person. And if there is a God, he must accept me as I am. You know, he must do. I'm good. There are plenty of people worse than me. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Putin. If there is a God, why? I love my kids. I'm kind. I give to charity. That's informal religion. But all of those things stop us from coming to God because we're not desperate for him. We don't want him. We basically want to live our lives our way and make it work the way we think it should work without Jesus messing it up. And so in this chapter here, they refuse to come to him and have life. But what happens if we do? What happens if people like you and me do come to Jesus? What difference does that make? You know, another thing I've liked about King Charles, I'm on a a King Charles fan phase at the moment, is that um, he's been very affectionate towards us, hasn't he? Very warm towards us as his people. I sense a real desire to serve this nation as his mother did before him. I actually think there's a weightiness about him that I understand comes when people feel the weight of the crown. His mother bore that for 70 years. He feels it now, the weight, the responsibility, 
There is no one above him in our nation. God ordained it to be so. Here's something he can't do for you and me. Not unless he can marry you off to one of the grandchildren. Is he cannot make you part of the royal family. We're ordinary, aren't we? And they, in some senses, are privileged and set apart. It's the life they were born to, and we weren't. And you can form a fourth queue, and we can talk about that if you want to afterwards. Here's the thing, and this is where we finish. If you get nothing else out of today, get this. Jesus came to bring you into his family. I don't mean by that into church. That's a totally separate thing. You can be in church and not be part of the family. You can just be religious. It can just be something you do on a Sunday morning, and that happens up and down this country. What Jesus wants for you is to know his Father as your Father. And until you get that, you don't get any of it. Until you get that Jesus came into this world so that his Father could be your Father. So you can know his love in your heart. You really don't understand any of it. You have to know that love. Did you know that on the night before he died, Jesus prayed for you? John's gospel is the only one that records it. All the others talk about him praying to his father in the garden of Gethsemane and saying, take this cup away from me, not my will, but yours be done. Do you remember that? John goes much further. He actually starts talking about what he obviously overheard Jesus praying. And without him writing this, we wouldn't have this. But he prayed for you. He said, there are going to be generations that follow through the witness of my disciples, and I want to pray for them. And you are in that line, and he prayed for you. Do you want to know what he prayed for you? Let me read it to you now. Father, I want those you have given me people like you and me, to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me and have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Has Jesus' prayer been answered in you? Do you know God as your Father? Do you know His love in your heart? Do you know Jesus as your Savior, the one who deals with the darkness and brings light and life and love to you? Do you know His Spirit within you making these things real? So that when you hear this word read, it's no matter just a dry, dusty book to be studied, but it is the living, breathing Word of God. That draws you again and again to Jesus Christ. If you've never taken that step into that world, you can do it here this morning. 
Our God sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He ordained this whole universe, whether you know it or not, so that you would be sat here this morning, so that you would hear these things, so that your life would be transformed and changed by his goodness and glory and grace. The only person who stops you coming in is you. He gives you the right to say, no thanks or no way. But my prayer for you here this morning is you would not make that mistake. There's no condemnation in Christ, but there's no hope without him. Let me pray. Father God, this is staggering stuff. When Jesus of Nazareth said these things, people found it hard to take in. And I pray for any here this morning who are very new to these things, and it just seems like too much to take in. Holy Spirit, please be at work now. Take these truths and burn them into our hearts that the light and the glory and the wonder of Jesus might be ours, not just in an intellectual way, not just in a way that we know it, but in a way that runs deep so that his life is seen in ours. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into this world knowing what would happen to you, knowing how hated you would be. Thank you that you pushed through that hatred all for love and you bring your rescue to ordinary people like us right the way around this world that we might know and love your Father as our Father, you as our King, and your Spirit within us. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Praise your name. Praise your holy name. Thank you that you do all things well and all in love. Amen.